You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 74, Occupied Boston, 1775. Last week, I talked about the American lines around Boston during the fall of 1775. Today, I want to discuss the British regulars in Boston during that same time. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, London recalled General Gage after receiving word of the Battle of Bunker Hill. They sent the letter in early August, but Gage did not receive it until September 26th. He turned over authority to General Howe on October 10th and set sail for London, never to return. As you may recall from earlier episodes, General Howe had arrived shortly after Lexington and spent most of his time criticizing General Gage to superiors in London. He also led the attack on Bunker Hill. There were more than a hundred generals more senior than Howe who could have taken command in North America. However, the prospect of crushing British subjects in the colonies did not appeal to many of them. General Howe himself had promised his constituents during the last parliamentary elections that he would not serve in the colonies. Yet when the ministry called for his service, General Howe felt he could not refuse. He indicated that he would aggressively suppress the rebellion. But, as we will see, his actions over the next few years suggest otherwise. After taking command, Howe did not seem in any hurry to make any major immediate changes. He had been living over in Charlestown, near Bunker Hill, since the battle. On General Gage's departure, Howe moved back into Boston and turned over command of Charlestown to the next most senior general in theater, General Clinton. He sent a letter back on the same ship that returned Gage to London, informing Lord Dartmouth that the army should not remain in Boston, that they should evacuate by sea and land to Rhode Island, where they would have more room to maneuver. Howe also locked down Boston even tighter, ordering that no one should leave the city on pain of death, and that remaining Bostonians would have to join in the defense of the city. Last week, I also mentioned that the real threat to the Continental Army came not from military salt so much as it came from hunger and disease. The same thing was true for the British Army. Over the winter, disease killed 20 to 30 soldiers every single day. More soldiers died in any one month over that Boston winter than died from bullet or bayonet on the battlefields of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill combined. Fatal disease was an inevitable part of almost any army, especially one stuck inside a city. It did not help health matters that food and firewood became increasingly scarce. The Patriots, as I've said, did not really have any ships that could face a British ship of the line, or even many of the medium-sized ships of the Navy, but British ships for transporting supplies and even small naval vessels that found themselves separated from the fleet could become targets for New England whaleboats or schooners armed with cannons and swivel guns. The Navy grew increasingly frustrated as local self-appointed privateers, or what they would call pirates, harassed British shipping and prevented the flow of food and firewood to Boston. 
Admiral Graves informed the Admiralty in London that landings had become too dangerous and that the army would have to rely on supplies shipped from Britain rather than obtaining supplies locally. Even British deliveries had their risks. In October, a transport carrying flour to Boston accidentally entered Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Locals took the ship, the crew became prisoners, and the flour went to the Continental Army. Meanwhile, the regulars and civilians in Boston lived on ever smaller rations, mostly of salted meat. One officer had his horse stolen, only to find it butchered and sold for meat in the market. Feeling the pressure to provide more supplies, and despite his warnings to London, Admiral Graves ordered his ships to get more aggressive in acquiring food from local towns. He also put his officers on notice to take prisoner any rebel officers, radical leaders, or members of the Continental Congress that they could capture. Graves had stationed part of his fleet near Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. A squad of several ships commanded by Captain James Wallace aboard the HMS Rose continually demanded the locals sell them necessary food. As you might guess, the local patriots grew more resistant to these demands. Under the guns of the Navy, they often assisted they had no food available. On October 7th, during one frustrating search for food, Captain Wallace ordered his fleet to open fire on the town of Bristol. After the town sent a local official out to the ship to beg for a ceasefire, Wallace demanded 200 sheep and 30 cattle. Again, the locals pleaded that they had no animals. Finally, the parties bargained down to 40 sheep, which the town supplied in order to avoid destruction. A few days later, Graves sent a fleet from Boston to the north looking for towns to loot and destroy. He deployed the fleet under the command of Lieutenant Henry Mowat, an experienced officer who had confronted patriots before. Mowat had commanded the deployment that Graves had sent to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, back in December 1774. You may recall this was part of the mission to secure Fort William and Mary, and ended up sparking the local militia attack on the fort before Moat could arrive. In the spring of 1775, Moat had sailed up to Falmouth, which is modern-day Portland, Maine. He went there to protect a loyalist who was trying to repair and launch a ship there in violation of the colonial boycott. The work took several weeks, during which time Lexington and Concord set off patriots everywhere. A group of several hundred militia attempted to capture Moat's ship, the HMS Canso. The ship was prepared to fight any attempt to take it. But the militia did capture Moat himself, who had the misfortune to be ashore during the raid. Moat's second-in-command threatened to level the town unless the militia released Moat, which they did after a short time. Now, this event is sometimes called Thompson's War after the militia commander who led the raid. Now, in October, Moat was being tasked with making some examples of some rebel towns along the coast. He could not think of a better target than Falmouth, the same town that had taken him hostage a few months earlier. So on October 17th, he brought his fleet back to the town, sent an officer ashore to announce to the townspeople that they had two hours before he would open fire and destroy the town. Now that locals hoped that Moat was bluffing, they tried to buy their way out of the destruction by providing supplies, the same way we saw in Bristol. 
Moet, however, was bent on destruction. As it was getting late, he agreed to withhold fire until the following morning if the town turned over its arms. The town came back with less than a dozen muskets, but it was enough to get Moet to delay until morning. Now, the following morning, after a short delay to remove some women and children who were still in town, the fleet opened fire. Now, Falmouth consisted of only about 200 buildings, but as the buildings were far apart, burning each building took time. The fleet spent about nine hours firing on the town and completely destroying about 75% of the buildings. Although Mowat had authority to destroy multiple towns up and down the coast, he decided that Falmouth was a good enough example. The attack, however, did not inspire fear so much as it angered New Englanders, who supported the Patriots even more as a result. Now, next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about the fact that around this same time, Congress approved a Continental Navy, and a few colonies such as Rhode Island had already launched ships to attack and capture British shipping. But in late 1775, the real threat to British shipping came primarily from privateers. These were privately owned ships with private crews, and they essentially acted as pirates. They would capture a ship, bring it to harbor, and sell the ship and its cargo to the highest bidder. The ship's owner, captain, and crew would divvy up the profits as they saw fit. Later in the war, Congress would grant letters of marque to privateers, authorizing them to attack British shipping. But in 1775, before such letters existed, the only thing separating privateers from pirates was that they chose to attack only British ships and that they had the support of most New Englanders when they brought their prizes back to port. Since privateer efforts would have been prosecuted for piracy had the British won, there were not many records, especially early in the war, about the numbers of prizes captured or who exactly was involved. But we do know that the British knew their ships were always at risk and that many would be lost if left without the protection of a well-armed Navy schooner or ship of the line. To add to the privateers, Washington also launched four ships in November working directly for the Army. The benefit of this first unofficial fleet was that captured prizes would benefit the army rather than just get sold at market. Ships' crews, of course, would keep a percentage of any prize, just like the Royal Navy tradition, in order to keep them motivated. The privateers and Washington squadron proved effective in keeping Boston from receiving provisions. They also helped to feed and supply Washington's army. The most successful capture came when the Lee, a ship named for General Charles Lee, captured a large incoming supply ship called the Nancy. As the Nancy approached Boston, the captain spotted the Lee and signaled, thinking it was a pilot ship that would help guide it into the harbor. The captain of the Lee sent over a crew in a longboat, hiding their muskets until they boarded and took the startled crew without a fight. The Patriots then guided the Nancy to a nearby Patriot-controlled port, where they took possession of a huge cache of arms and ammunition. 2,000 muskets, 8,000 fuses, 31 tons of musket balls, 3,000 cannonballs, one 13-inch cannon, 100,000 flints, and other supplies as well. The Continental Army, which was desperately short on muskets and flints, 
celebrated the capture as one of the most important successes that fall. Meanwhile, the British garrison at Boston suffered a critical loss of arms and ammunition and received another reminder about how tenuous their position in Boston really was. While the army in Boston largely had to rely on the Navy for food and supplies, it occasionally saw an opportunity of its own. Phipps Farm sat just next to Charlestown Neck inside the Patriot Lines, but also just along the northern coast of Boston Harbor. The British regularly had transport ships in the harbor moving vessels between Boston and Charlestown, or loading men and equipment on and off Navy vessels, so it was not unusual to see several longboats milling about. As a result, the Patriot sentries were not on high alert when they saw several boats full of soldiers near the shore on November 9th. Then, using a prearranged signal, several boats turned all at once and rushed ashore. They captured one sentry and sent a few others scattering. The Patriots fired a few shots as the regulars rounded up a field full of cattle and herded them across Charlestown Neck into British lines. Now, I've seen different accounts on how many cattle they got, but it ranged from 10 to about 45. Whatever the number, the army certainly ate well for a few days, and no one got killed. After the raid, Washington mounted entrenched artillery on top of Copps Hill, overlooking both Charlestown and Phipps Farm. It served as a deterrent to future raids, and also posed another potential threat to the British in Charlestown and Boston, at least that is if Washington ever got enough gunpowder to use his cannons against them. As autumn turned to winter, the situation in Boston became worse. Soldiers were surviving on one-third rations, and full rations were not that generous to begin with. Firewood, necessary for both warmth and cooking, became non-existent. Early in the siege, regulars had cut down the Liberty Tree and other trees in Boston Common. Now pretty much all the trees were gone. How condemned about a hundred wooden buildings, including the North Church, to be used for firewood? Over the winter, Britain sent a fleet of 36 supply ships to bring food to Boston. Storms and privateers took out most of them, so that only 13 actually made it to Boston. And of those, some found that up to 90% of the food supplies had spoiled in transit. More and more, General Howe and his officers accepted that their position was untenable. It only reinforced the decision to abandon Boston. Now, as I said, Howe originally considered Rhode Island, but now he was favoring New York City. The large harbor would accommodate the naval fleet, and most thought the population in New York would be friendlier to the army than anywhere in New England. London also continued to send reinforcements over the winter, but death and disease subtracted from almost as many soldiers as the reinforcements added. In November, General Howe kicked out about 300 impoverished and sick civilians to eliminate a few hungry mouths. Many of those removed had smallpox, which, even after their departure, continued to spread through the city. Some of the civilians, however, reached continental lines and helped spread smallpox to the Continental Army as well. The British officers in Boston did their best to keep up morale. Soldiers had turned the South Church into an indoor riding stable for horses, having already burned all the pews and other furniture. 
General Burgoyne, now third in command behind Generals Howe and Clinton, had almost nothing to do. He took to writing plays for the army to perform, as he had done in London. This may have been more offensive to the Boston sensibilities than burning churches or turning them into stables. Since the founding of the colony, live theater had been banned and was considered a grievous sin. Burgoyne was not content to be a morale officer anyway. By fall, he was petitioning London to return home. He finally received approval and left Boston on December 5, 1775. By the end of the year, it was clear to everyone that nothing was going to happen until spring. The primary occupation of the army was searching for food and fuel. There was always the chance that the Continentals might spring a surprise winter attack, which I suppose is why Howe did not begin shipping his army and loyalist civilians to another location such as New York or Halifax over the winter. Another reason for not leaving may have been that the Navy had also deteriorated. Unlike the Army, the Navy had not received many reinforcements during 1775. A few ships had arrived, but not with more sailors for the ships that were already there. Crews on those ships had thinned, mostly due to disease and desertion over the year. This left many ships at a questionable level of readiness. Since the Army had taken control of the Marines, the Navy did not have the forces to conduct any sizable raids against towns either. Admiral Graves also was the victim of cost-cutting in London. He had few funds to keep his ships in good repair. Running ships at sea caused harm that required expensive repairs. He did not have the men, money, or material to use his ships very aggressively. Other than ordering the destruction of Falmouth and a few raids, Graves did rather little to further the cause since he received his promotion near the beginning of 1775. He must have decided that hanging out and waiting to support the army, if it ever decided to do anything, was his main goal. General Gage wanted him to keep a substantial artillery presence in Boston Harbor in order to deter any attacks on the town. Even so, one would expect an active officer to be running convoys and working more aggressively to find food for the army. In August, Burgoyne wrote a scathing letter to Lord Germain in London, essentially saying that Admiral Graves was doing nothing, not supplying the troops, not defending islands in the harbor, not engaged in communication and intelligence, and not inspiring fear among the rebels. I really don't think anyone would describe Graves as aggressive. Another issue that probably contributed to this was that Graves did not respect nor even like General Gage. Graves seemed to consider Gage incompetent. There was also a social dispute between their wives, which certainly did not help. Graves seemed to care little about assisting the army in any way. I already mentioned how Graves charged a fee to let starving soldiers fish in the harbor. Graves also rejected several attempts by Gage to send army-authorized vessels in search of food or fuel. Not only would the Navy refuse to find food, Graves made it difficult for the Army to get its own food. When Gage received his recall papers in September, Graves and his officers held a small celebration aboard ship. Graves, however, did not get along any better with the new commander, General Howe. I think it's fair to say that Graves did not get along with much of anyone. 
Now his subordinate officers obeyed his orders, but seemed also to quietly object to the fact that he favored his nephews for good assignments and promotion. In August, Graves got into a fistfight on the streets of Boston with Customs Commissioner Benjamin Hollowell after Graves refused to give Hollowell a permit to harvest his own hay on an island in the harbor for the benefit of the army. So in September, just about the same time General Gage was receiving his orders to return to London, the Admiralty back in London also decided to recall Admiral Graves. They ordered Rear Admiral Mullineux Sholdham to take over for him. Sholdham did not arrive until late December, when he had the uncomfortable task of informing his superior officer that he was taking charge. Graves, who apparently thought he was doing just wonderfully at the job, was surprised by the recall. Graves left for London in January 1776, arriving back in London a few months later. The Admiralty offered him the command of the fleet in Plymouth, England, which he refused. He remained in active service, but without a command, receiving two more promotions over the next few years. However, he would never return to America. Meanwhile, the British military in Boston shivered through the rest of the winter, cold, hungry, tired, and dying of disease. Next week, we're going to return to Philadelphia, where a busy Continental Congress creates a Navy, a Marines, and a diplomatic corps, among other things. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to today's recommendation, I want to encourage everyone to join my Facebook group. If you do, be careful, there are two different groups called American Revolution Podcast. Be sure to join the one administered by me, Michael Troy. If you can't figure out which one that is, there is a link directly to my Facebook group on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. The link is at the bottom of the page. Now, I know Facebook seems to be on the wane, but I think this group is a great place for back-and-forth discussions about issues I address each week. If anyone has any better idea for another forum where I can set up and get more interaction, let me know. I'll try that as well. So today we said goodbye to two important players who have been part of the story for quite some time, General Thomas Gage and Admiral Samuel Graves. In terms of results, neither seemed particularly impressive, especially to officials in London, 
who always thought the colonies would fold if only some officer would show a little determination. The truth is that Gage probably could have rather easily blasted his way out of Boston with artillery. The problem was, then what? His soldiers could spend a couple of years wandering around New England, burning and destroying whatever they wanted, but they'd probably also be subject to constant hit-and-run attacks the same way they were on the day of Lexington and Concord. It would have been a bloody and protracted affair for both sides. Who knows if it really would have affected the outcome. They might have pushed the rebels into a surrender. On the other hand, they might have found themselves cut off and captured, just like what's going to happen in 1777, not to give anything away. A gauge showed no interest in a bloody scorched earth policy against the rebels, and really neither did Admiral Graves. But then neither did either of their successors as well. The British officers just really didn't want to go after their fellow English colonists the way they'd want to go after, say, the French. Now, as for their replacements, Admiral Shodham won't be in the story for very long, but General Howe will be the commander for the next two and a half critical years of the war. He will show no more interest in an aggressive slash-and-burn policy than his predecessor. Instead, we'll see the British sitting in Boston, not doing much of anything. Now, although they had access to supplies from the sea, I hope I pointed out pretty well today that those lines were somewhat tenuous. The Continentals could not really cut off the Navy but they could make access to supplies quite difficult and expensive. The war at sea during this period usually gets rather little attention. Washington, however, wanted to use sea power where possible to cause trouble with the British supply lines. And that brings me to today's book recommendation, Washington's Secret Navy, How the American Revolution Went to Sea, by James L. Nelson. It discusses American naval operations before there was an official navy. The book starts by covering the battles of Noddles Island and Machias, which I of course discussed in earlier episodes, and goes through the British evacuation of Boston. It's a gripping look at how Americans took on the most powerful navy in the world with next to nothing. Now, the book gets into plenty of detail with about 330 pages of text. The author, James Nelson is a rather prolific author with over two dozen nautical works of both fiction and nonfiction. I guess with a name like Nelson, you have to be drawn to the sea. And he has written at least three other nonfiction books about the Revolution. The book Washington's Secret Navy won an award for naval literature when it was first published in 2008. It's an easy read and has lots of endnotes if you're like me and you want to look up the original sources on what you're reading. It's the best book I've found on the early naval history of the American Revolution. As I do every week, I've published a link on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, to link to the book on Amazon. If you buy the book or anything else on Amazon after clicking on that link, you help support this podcast since Amazon gives us a commission on all purchases. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast.